The real damage is done by those who want to survive. The honest men who just want to be left in peace. Those who don't want their little lives disturbed by anything bigger than themselves. Those with no sides and no causes. Those who won't take measure of their own strength for fear of antagonizing their own weakness. Those who don't like to make waves or enemies. Those for whom freedom, honor, truth, and principles are only literature. If you don't make any noise, the boogeyman won't find you. But it's all an illusion because they die too. Those people who roll up their spirits into tiny little balls as to be safe. Safe from what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues and a little candle burns itself out just like a flaming torch does. I choose my own way to burn. Sophie Scholl, German resistor, member of the White Rose. I'm Erin Pack, and this is Your Bad Conscience. The beginning quote is powerful. One of the most powerful, meaningful things I've ever read in my entire life. The origin of it, or if Sophie Scholl, our star of today's episode, really wrote it is up for debate. No one can really verify if she wrote that or if an author simply attributed it to her. But that doesn't take away from its power. The pack The fact that people attribute it to her is enough reason to associate it with her wisdom. According to the authors Gordon Thomas and Greg Lewis, for the Nazis, you were either with us or against us. There was no opposition, ridicule, or debate. The regime demanded conformity. Merely a college student during Hitler's so-called Third Reich, Scholl, along with her brother Hans and several of their friends, saw in the Nazis an affront to humanity. So what did they do? They wrote about it. They wrote about it, and they only stopped when they were murdered by the state. Sophia Magdalena Scholl was born on May 9, 1921, in the free state of Württemberg, in the former Weimar Republic, present-day Germany. Her family and everyone else called her Sophie from a young age. Her parents, Robert and Magdalena, were outspoken anti-fascist and tried to impress these values on their five surviving children. Robert, a city politician, would even spend two stints in jail for making jokes about Hitler. Once he even called Hitler the scourge of God. The Scholls were devoutly religious Lutherans and independent political freethinkers. But the thrill of the Hitler youth with their parades and camping trips and all around rah-rah atmosphere really caught young Sophie's attention. She joined the League of German Girls and although she could be disinterested at times, she definitely participated. We know that she once made her League of German Girls leader mad by reading Heinrich Heime, a banned Jewish writer. 
and that she also invited her Jewish classmates to her house for tea. Big no-nos at this time. All the while, Robert and Magdalena held open discussions with their children, and they allowed for political debate and open exchange. This was rare for the time, and even rarer for Nazi Germany. Although the change was gradual, it happened. The bookshelf, after years of bending and cracking, finally snapped and fell. It's not clear when or where Sophie became an active anti-fascist, but the Nuremberg Laws and Action T4 might have had something to do with it. Right and wrong have nothing to do with politics and nationality. Justice takes precedence over all other attachments. Sophie Scholl in a letter to her boyfriend, Fritz Hartnagel. According to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, the Nuremberg Laws, which began in September 1935, were a series of racist laws targeting Jewish people in Germany. In 1935 in Nazi Germany, anti-Semitism was the law of the land. It was codified into law. Some of the Nuremberg Laws included, but were not limited to, stripping German Jewish citizens of their citizenship rights, even if they had converted or weren't religious at all. If their grandparents were Jewish by either blood or by practice, they too were considered Jewish. Extramarital affairs between Germans and loosely defined non-Germans were strictly prohibited. Only Reich citizens, so definitely not Jewish people, could vote or hold public office. Additionally, any Jewish office holders were forced into retirement by December 1935. Action T4 was equally sinister, but it happened about two years after the Nuremberg Laws. It allowed for the euthanasia of anyone whose life wasn't worth living, and that is a direct translation quote. This included people with various mental illnesses, uh, physical disabilities, pretty much anything that did not fit into this Aryan ideal of health. It's estimated that around 200,000 people in Germany and occupied Austria, and about 100,000 additional victims in other European Nazi-occupied countries died because of Action T4. An outspoken bishop, Clemens August Graf von Galen began giving sermons about the inhumanity of Action T4. His words were soon printed and spread across Germany. One of these pamphlets with von Galen's words made their way to the Scholl's residence. In 1937, Hans, Sophie's older brother, was arrested for subversive activities. His participation with the youth movement was the reason for this arrest. Hans, it seems, inherited his parents' sense of independence. He no longer wanted to be like his fellow Hitler youth. He wanted to be like his parents, Robert and Magdalena. They were kind, they believed in the goodness of people, and they always thought for themselves, according to Thomas and Lewis. Two years after that, Hans was drafted into the Wehrmacht. He served mostly on the Eastern Front, and he saw the Nazi atrocities and overall ugliness of the war firsthand. 
Hans was part of the German army that invaded France too. When he came back to Germany, he began university in Munich and began studying medicine. Hans found friendship through his fellow university students, uh, including but not limited to uh, Christoph Probst, Willy Graf, Alexander Schmorl, Trat of La Friends, and philosophy professor Kurt Uber. Now Sophie, who was younger than Hans, she arrived at the University of Munich in 1942, and she naturally fell in with her older brother's crowd. Hans and Sophie had always been close, and their college years were no exception. We know that around this time, Sophie came into contact with so-called degenerate artists. As always, familiarity breeds less hate. Even though Sophie had been a member of the League of German Girls years before, she had continually distanced herself more and more from the fascist realities of the Nazi party. Not only that, but she heard Hans's stories about the Nazi euthanasia programs and the killing of Jewish people and Eastern European minorities. She had done her time doing labor and auxiliary service for the Nazi war effort, and she was finished. We don't really know exactly when Sophie began writing, participating, and spreading the highly illegal yet needed news of anti-fascism, but we do know that she jumped in wholeheartedly. Beginning in late 1942, the White Rose, or in German, the Visa Rosa, began publishing pamphlets. So what makes these short, precise pamphlets so moving, so profound that we still discuss them today? Well, rhetorical boldness. They read like poetry on fire, even when translated into English. Isn't it true that every honest German is ashamed of his government these days? Who among us can imagine the degree of shame that will come upon us and upon our children when the veil falls from our faces and the awful crimes that infinitely exceed any human measure are exposed to the light of day? If the German nation is so corrupt and decadent in its innermost being that it is willing to surrender the greatest possession a man can own, a possession that elevates mankind above all other creatures, namely free will, if it is willing to surrender this without so much as raising a hand, rashly trusting a questionable lawful order of history, if it surrenders the freedom of mankind to intrude upon the wheel of history and subjugate it to his own rational decision, if Germans are so devoid of individuality that they have become an unthinking and cowardly mob, then yes, they deserve their destruction. White Rose Leaflet, number one, summer, 1942. This was Nazi Germany in the 1940s. There was definitely no internet, uh, patchy and monitored phone service, and it was even illegal to own a copying machine. So what did the White Rose do? How did they manage to spread the word without the ease of a modern freer society? They did this all under the cover of night. They obtained a small copying machine and kept it hidden in members' closets. More than once, they used their friend's father's church rectory right behind the organ to write. 
they distributed their writings all over Munich. At one point, they distributed all over Germany and even parts of Austria. According to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, the White Rose students would pick out random addresses in Germany from a phone book and mail leaflets to those addresses. They were in college too, so they would also take stacks home during those long train rides to and from their hometowns all over the country. They also had a side activity of painting graffiti all over Munich. Freedom was a favorite tag of Hans's. Uh, they also painted incendiary mottos like Hitler, the mass murderer, and down with Hitler. And one of their graffiti marks happened to be at the site of the infamous 1923 Munich Beer Hall Push, so a site kind of sacred to Nazis. College kids have been learning about and protesting their respective governments for ages, so what made the White Rose so distinct? Well, we're talking about German citizens outwardly going against the biggest big bad in the history of them all, Nazis. Once we considered how they were raised, despite their parents' best efforts, uh, the Hitler Youth to Wehrmacht escalator, it becomes even more remarkable. It becomes even more wondrous whenever you consider that spreading anti-Nazi ideas at this time was a straight-up capital crime. There is an old proverb that children are always taught anew. Pay attention or pay the consequences. A small child will only burn his fingers once on a hot stove. White Rose Leaflet Number 4, July 1942. Pay attention. Between the summer of 1942 and February 1943, the White Rose wrote, produced, and distributed their messages throughout Nazi Germany. Each one of their five leaflets addresses different audiences. One is for students, another is for religious people, one for the general population, and yet another for intellectuals. All of which argue in a salient way why fascism was not only inhumane, but why it would lead to Germany's eventual downfall. The White Rose, they were a literary, socially conscientious collective, they often used allusions to classic German literature such as Faust and mentions of the Bible to make their point. Theirs was a belief in the overall good of humanity, that literature can change the world, that beauty in nature and philosophy could change hearts as well as minds. They believed in passive resistance, although they were not above active sabotage either. If this weren't in Nazi Germany, it would all sound like a dreamy college existence. But they had work to do. We will not be silent. We are your bad conscience. The White Rose will not leave you in peace. White Rose Leaflet Number 4, Summer 1942 Along with writing the leaflets, making the copies, and managing all of the group's finances, Sophie was heavily involved in the White Rose's distribution scheme. In a society known for traditional feminine roles uh, and expectations, Sophie was both a rule breaker and a groundbreaker. The slogan for uh, women 
of the day were, was quite literally translated into children, kitchen, church. Yes. Nazi women were expected to be at home, having as many babies as possible for the good of the Reich. The American equivalent might be considered barefoot and pregnant. When Sophie would distribute the White Rose pamphlets, she was inconspicuous. She was a small woman with a pleasant smile, and although she had shorter hair, uh, her pale Aryan features could not be the mark of a saboteur, much less an active, involved, incredible saboteur. Sophie and the other distributors were so effective with their work that the Gestapo became convinced that the White Rose was this massive countrywide resistance movement, not just a small group of college kids in Munich. Every word that comes from Hitler's mouth is a lie. When he says peace, he means war. And when he blasphemously uses the name of the Almighty, he means the power of evil. His mouth is the foul-smelling maw of hell, and his might is at bottom accursed. True, we must conduct a struggle against Nazism terrorist state with rational means, but whoever today still doubts the reality, the existence of demonic powers, has failed by a wide margin to understand the metaphysical background of this war. White Rose Leaflet, number four, summer, 1942. But in what author Frank Madonna calls a small moment of impulse, it came to a bitter end. While Hans and Sophie were distributing new issues of leaflet number six, they decided to covertly go on campus. On February 18th, 1943, a cruel fate would come upon the Scholl siblings, forever leaving a legacy of talent, bravery, and best of all, conscious. They were the best of humanity. At the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich on that cold February day, Hans and Sophie brought suitcases packed to the gills with leaflet number six. They left copies outside of lecture halls, by restroom exits, and near common areas while classes were in session. On a second story landing, Sophie decided to toss extra leaflets into the air to have them fall into the center of the first floor. We aren't sure, of course, what motivated her to take such an action. Rage, joy, youthful impulse, maybe a combination of all. A maintenance worker named Jacob Smith, or Jacob Smith, uh, caught the siblings and turned them into the police. It's worth noting that Smith received a promotion as a direct result of his actions. Along with this promotion, he received a thank you rally in his honor for the actions that he had taken against student resistance. Of course, this is all pretty messed up and it's about to get worse. Before taken into Gestapo custody, Sophie destroyed and got rid of any extra pamphlets, but Hans unfortunately didn't. Based on the evidence matching Christoph Probst's handwriting, the Gestapo ended up arresting him as well. Sophie's arresting officer, Robert Moore, initially thought she was innocent. Maybe she was an unwilling participant in her brother's treasonous schemes. In fact, 
Moore admitted to Hans and Sophie's father, Robert, in 1951 that he tried to lead Sophie into testifying against Hans. Perhaps there was an undue influence from the older brother upon the little sister, but Sophie didn't budge on this sinister manipulation. The truth did out, and Sophie decided not to hide her real anti-Nazi feelings and affiliations. This is a direct translation from Moore's interrogation of Sophie. After it has been made clear to me that my brother, Hans Scholl, decided to give honor to the truth and to give real reasons for our actions, I no longer hold fast to the previous things I have said. It was our conviction that the war was lost for Germany and that every life that has been sacrificed for this lost war is for nothing, especially the fallen at Stalingrad. This meaningless loss of life convinced us even further to do something. I would like to state that I personally would like nothing to do with Nazism. Sophie Scholl's Police Interrogation, February 1943. Just five days later, the three, the two Scholl siblings and Christoph Probst, were taken to the so-called People's Court and charged with high treason and crimes against the German people. According to Thomas and Lewis, the verdict and sentence had already been decided before court even started. These court transcripts are chilling in how mundane and ordinary they read. You might be reading about traffic court or family court, or, you know, treason in one of the most evil societies to ever thrive. These show trials were nothing more than spectacle, attempting to show off a twisted Nazi version of justice and shame these so-called ungrateful children of the generous Reich that had been nurtured from childhood. A fanatical Nazi named Roland Freisler oversaw the kangaroo proceedings. The three were not permitted to testify for themselves in court, uh, but luckily our Sophie, ever the outspoken one, she did shout one thing out in court unprompted. Somebody after all had to make a start. What we wrote and said is also believed by many others. They just don't dare express themselves as we did. You know the war is lost. Why don't you have the courage to face it? Sophie Scholl, 1943. And that was that. These students, these children with their whole lives ahead of them, they knew exactly what was about to happen. But they did it anyway. They were denounced as traitors and beheaded by Gaetine on the same day, February 22nd, 1943. Such a fine sunny day and I have to go, but what does my death matter? if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred into action. Sophie's words to her cellmate, Elsa Gabel, February, 1943. Sophie and Hans's parents were allowed to see their two children one last time. Before leaving Stadelheim prison, Robert said to them both, you will go down in history. There is such a thing as justice in spite all of this. I am very proud of you. They were good parents. Sophie was beheaded first, 
and by all accounts, she remained calm and collected, even at the moment of death. When prison officials went back to her cell, they found a copy of her indictment for high treason. And on the back, Sophie wrote FREEDOM in all capital letters. Although the White Rose and their leaders were flaunted and executed as traitors, they are now fortunately lauded in modern-day Germany. There are several memorials, exhibits, and tributes not only to the Scholl siblings and their associates in the White Rose, but to resistance fighters in general during the Nazi era. There's a great museum in Berlin called the German Resistance Memorial Center as well. I think DW, the German news agency, said it best. They remind us that doing the right thing is difficult, often dangerous, but vital in the struggle against tyranny and despotism. Finally, they remind us all that we all have the capacity to be heroes, even in the darkest of times. I've admired Sophie Scholl for quite a long time, and I think that can be traced to the 2005 film Sophie Scholl, The Final Days, directed by Mark Rothamund and written by Fred Breinersdorfer. I can't recommend this movie enough. It's based on the real-life transcripts between Sophie Scholl and Robert Moore. How had I, a history buff since childhood, not heard about Sophie Scholl until 2005? I needed to read everything I could about her and her short, remarkable life. This led to positive spiraling. I needed to now learn everything I could about resistance fighters in general. Thus, this podcast came to be. I will be talking about resistance fighters from all around the world in several different eras. Admittedly, World War II is my wheelhouse, but that will not be the main focus of our time together. I've been researching many different people from many different places and times, and I'm very excited to share them with you all. For my research today, I am greatly indebted to the books Defying Hitler, The Germans Who Refused Nazi Rule by Gordon Thomas and Greg Lewis, Frauen, German Women Recall the Third Reich by Alison Owings, Sophie Scholl, The Real Story Behind Germany's Resistance Heroine by Frank Dono, and At the Heart of the White Rose, uh, the letters and diaries of Sophie and Hans Scholl, edited by Enga Jans, and translated by J. Maxwell Brownjohn. I also used material from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum website, Facing History in Ourselves, uh, and the Center for White Rose Studies, particularly for the section on the Gestapo interrogations. Uh, for a full listing of citations, I'll be posting transcripts on my website uh, as soon as it's up and running. If you would like to email me or share some ideas or even some corrections, uh, the email is badconsciencepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at yourbadconscience. Uh, join me in two weeks. Uh, we will be learning about the revolutionary women of Afghanistan. And thank you for joining me. And as always, listen to your bad conscience. <laughs>